welcome to Elite Team Leadership. My name is James O'Connor and this is episode 8 featuring Trevor Vincent. Now Trevor was a 1962 Commonwealth gold medalist in the steeplechase and also competed in the 64 Olympic Games in Tokyo two years later. And we really get insight into how Trevor achieved his success um, during this period which also brought about a golden era in distance running in Australia with us breaking every world record from 800 metres to the marathon between 54 and 68. And I really think whether you're a business owner or in charge of a sporting team or just doing sport yourself, you can really grab hold of these insights that Trevor gives and really apply them to yourself to take you to the next level. So get your notepad out and pen and really write down some key things that Trevor gives insight on and really apply them, apply them to yourself as soon as you can. So sit back and enjoy. Guys, if you love this episode, make sure you share it with your friends and family and hopefully they'll get as much out of it as you did. You know, these people we're interviewing have amazing insight and to how they achieve success and you can really grab some of those gold nuggets and really apply it to yourself and your life and take yourself to the next level. So make sure whether it be through email, Twitter or Facebook, share and spread the word about these people and the great insight that they have uh, to share for us all. So thank you. Hello and welcome to Elite Team Leadership. My name is James O'Connor and for today's episode, I'm super excited to sit down um, in Trevor Vincent's lovely lounge room actually and we're going to have a chat today um, about Trevor. He is a 1962 uh, Commonwealth Games Steeplechase champion and he was a part of an absolute golden era in distance running in Australia and athletics and I'm fortunate enough to get a chance to sit down and have a chat. Welcome Trevor. Yeah, thanks, James. Nice to talk to you. Fantastic. Well, we just actually just got in here a few minutes ago when we started chatting um, first, Trevor, about um, that golden era you were a part of, yeah. um, which include the likes of Ron Clark and and Herb Elliott and and you know even the guys New Zealanders with Peter Snell and Murray Holberg and so forth. Yeah, sure. Well, how we led into that, James, was actually a friend of mine in New Zealand has written a book called Peter Snell and the Kiwis Who Flew, and and it talks about the period in New Zealand from about the mid-50s through to the early 60s when New Zealand led by a coach, no famous coach named Arthur Liddy had really yep. made a huge breakthrough in athletics and, um, and Snell won Olympic gold medals um, and uh, so did Barry McGee won a good medal in the marathon and then Murray Helberg. And, and so this is a book talking about that era and what an incredible breakthrough period it was for New Zealand distance running. But... And recently I was asked to write a little review for that book, and yep. which I loved because I had was lucky enough to race against those guys in the early 60s and that provided me with some incredible inspiration um, yeah. with my athletics. But my point with it was that actually whilst the New Zealand breakthrough period happened, then so it happens so here in Australia. So we, from Australia and New Zealand being virtually unknown in distance running, made John Landy started things off a little bit for yep. both countries, but yep. Up through the 50s and 60s, we really went to the top in distance running worldwide. And, of course, you know, not not just through the most famous ones like Ron Clark and Herb Elliott, but we had, in the three Olympics, 56, 60 and 64, Australian produced bronze medalist at 10,000 metres in each of those three races. Yeah. And the first one was 
a guy named Alan Lawrence, who I still keep in touch with, and Al ran in 56 and got a surprise bronze medal. Yep. 60, a guy named Dave Power got a bronze, and then Ron Clark himself got a, a bronze in uh, 10K in 64. So it's a pretty remarkable time, and that was Australian distance running, and, of course, Herb Elliott won the 1500 in... 1960, and then a bit later on, bordering on distance running, but Ralph Dubell won a gold medal in 800 metres in 1968. So the the point about that those early years, as far as I personally was concerned, was that I learned a, a few things about distance running and about how to how to you know how to improve and whatever. And ba- and the few things were well, largely running with other people, um, and I was lucky enough that. Clarky and Tony Cook and John Corr and a bunch of us all started running together at Caulfield Racecourse with no great ambitions. Yep. Ron had achieved a bit as a junior. Yep. And not, I don't mean lighting the flame at the Olympic Games. He's actually <laughs> been a very good runner. Yeah. Um, we broke the junior record, didn't he? He held the world junior mile record. But yep. then he stopped running after that and he made a comeback and joined us at Caulfield Racecourse in the early 60s. So, yep. And he was the same. We're all the same ability. And we, and we all improved and grew and and. That New Zealand trip I made in 1961 with Tony Cook as a member of a, new, a Victorian team, we went and raced at the end of the trip in Auckland against those top New Zealanders, and we met that famous coach Arthur Lydiard there. Yep. And after that, we continued to improve, and we might basically say we won medals in the Commonwealth Olympic Games, stuff like that, in subsequent years. And, and to some extent, the New Zealanders reckoned that the trip to New Zealand was actually, and meeting Arthur Lydiard was what, and Arthur Lydia's influence made that difference, but it didn't really. What it really did to us, we'd, all our running was based on learning and reading and our own experiences. And we went over there and we found we were doing basically the same sort of training through our own experimentation, running in the Dandenongs. Yeah. And, and we'd done that and we, we were just, our plans and our, our training was reinforced by seeing that we were doing pretty much the same as them and they'd had success and so had we. Yeah. So we discounted Arthur Lydiard's claim, or their New Zealanders' claims, that that they were responsible for that breakthrough in Australian distance running. But certainly, it reinforced our ideas then of what we were doing was right. The New Zealanders did the same sort of thing; they'd run as a group. Yep. Um, and so, and we didn't distinguish. There were a lot of, quite often we'd go out running, and there'd be young guys and older guys who, on their day, might beat us in training. Yeah. But we didn't treat our training as the as the be all and end all. We yep. got out there and trained, we enjoyed what we did. So got on the track, we were good mates in training, we got on the track and uh, it was almost, you know, free for all. Yeah. But so how many people were part of your group back in, back in those days? How oh, many did well, you have? There'd be a, we were tied up with my club largely, Glen Huntley Club, and we were yep. based in uh, Caulfield Racecourse, which yep. is a great venue for running. In fact, it was used way back in the, around the turn of the 20th century, 1900, early 1900s. They used to run cross-country races, Australian Victorian Championships cross-country. Famous run for that, and even now Caulfield Racecourse is still used by um, Nick Bido and a large number of his current top-class yep. athletes, so yep. it's a great area. But look, we had a, a, a group that probably about, a nucleus of probably about half a dozen of us, yeah. with a, a number of others, and then very late 50s we discovered the Dandenongs, a friend of ours took us up there one day to have a look around, and we went to this place called Belgrave and we hopped out of here. He was the only one who had a car. Yeah. And we went for a run around Belgrave and then that was the start of Fernie Creek. And I'm still going up there 55 years later. Yeah. And I still go up every Sunday and uh, enjoy that because it's a great environment for running. 
Yes. And one of my beliefs is, is when it's not just about running, is, is life is a bit of variation, you know, and so yep. you don't do the same thing all the time. We used to run on Caulfield. We'd run on roads, but we'd always get up to Dandenong. So it'd be an incredible environment. We'd yep. The miles would just float by without even knowing it. Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a strong advocate of, um, of sort of having a variation in your training and racing, yep. you know, um, venues. And I might just add for listeners... I've actually been up to Fernie Creek a few times now. It yeah. is serious hills up there. It is, oh, it yeah. is, um, you know, on that, you think the main loop most of the boys do is yeah, a but, good but three or four. it's quite undulating, you know. Yep. I mean, there's some big hills. Um, there was a big one we used to run called the Two Mile Hill that ran from down out of Callista up towards Monbulk. Uh, I know up to Olinda, and there are a range of others. Um, yeah. Yeah, and Aeroplane Hill, which went down and then up. Yeah, yeah. Um, but all those things were part of... And we had some big hills there that after his career had finished, so I'm not saying that this was um, at Herb's best, but after Herb's career was finished, he came up and ran with us a little bit in the late 60s. Yeah, OK. But he was never competitive. But he used yep. to run up through there and he was battling on those hills just as much <laughs> as anyone else. Yep, yep. And we'd have some hills there that we'd have some international, interstate, interstate, guys, interstate guys, state guys would come. Yeah. But... Um, yeah, we enjoyed it and we ran as a group. And we always, we didn't sort of wait for people, but we, we didn't, it wasn't a race. So we'd run reasonably strongly, but we didn't race. I was just thinking, Trev, on the way here, Australian distance running back in those days, um, between 1954 when Landy broke the mile record yep. to 68 when DeBell won 800 mm. in world record time, we broke, Australians broke every world record from 800 to yep. a marathon. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty right. Yeah. Between yeah, LB well, Thomas. We can't claim the ma- De- marathon probably, but almost everything else. Well, De- Derek, didn't he? Oh yeah, Derek was sixty-eight. That's sixty-eight. Right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so he just sneaked in. Yeah, right. yeah sneaked in, and what, he yep. broke two ten for the first time, I think, wasn't he? Yeah, two. he was the first person to break two twelve. He was the first person to break two twelve, two eleven, two ten, and two nine. In fact, I'm going out to dinner with Derek on Saturday night, so we're still mates. There you go. Yeah. I um, We used to call him, and he won't mind me saying this, we used to call him Cassius. Yes. Cassius Clay, because he thought, in his early days, he was the one who thought he was the greatest. Yeah. None of us did. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a part of the thing about self-confidence. And Derek um, always had high goals. Yeah. Um, but they weren't, and he proved himself, that they weren't un- unachievable goals. Well, his yeah, world record stood till about 81, I think, it till Deke came time. along, really, wasn't yep. knocked it yeah, over. And, and I mean, so it was now 12, they're running 202, but it's different, mm. I reckon. Yeah, we'll talk about that later if you like. But basically, why they're running those times now is because they're paced and there's money. Yes. Um, and you look at the, uh, and a competitive Olympic or World Championship event where there's no money and the people are out there to win gold medals. Yes. That it's a competitive race, so they actually race rather than just get out there and run as quick as they can. Yes. Um, distance runners, distance running is a tactical race, even right through to a marathon. And it's not so tactical when you've got a half a dozen pacemakers out there getting a whole bunch of money to take you through the halfway time. They don't worry about racing, they worry about getting there as quick as they can and there's incentives for world records. Yes. I rubbish my di- sprinter friends because, and I tell, I'm a, I'm a, I coach a large group at Monash Uni Yes. On, and I always tell them, they say, I can't come to training tonight because I've got a study or I've got an exam tomorrow. I say, don't worry, distance runners are clever. And my argument, I, and that's compared to sprinters, because sprinters, uh, not too many of them listen to this, but <laughs> they get we, down we on the not. mark, they've got a lane, and someone says, get to the other end as quick as you can. 
Yes. You don't have to worry about tactics, you know, you just... So it's quite... So I know they are, they're quite yeah. clever sprinters, but yeah. they're not as clever as distance sprinters because <laughs> we have to actually think. Think about what you've got to yeah, do. Yeah, we have to work out tactics and... Absolutely. And... and Oh, we might, the sort of thing I, I always think, you know, one of my policies has always been to run, use my strengths. I yes. know you concentrate on trying to improve your weaknesses, but I always got to make sure that you don't spend too much time improving your strengths. Yes. Rather, you try and develop and keep your, your, your improve your weaknesses. Because I always, if I'd race people like Ron, Ron Clark and others, I wouldn't beat them if they were running world record pace. Yep but I could handle them in shorter distances or if they made a tactical mistake and ran slowly. Yes, you know? yes. Sorry, we're off the track a bit. No, there. no. That's all right, yeah. Well, I guess, you know, in sort of talking about that, that era, um, mm. if, you had to write, if you had to say three things that made that era come about for Australia, because yeah. we're middle of nowhere down here in the world, you're up against the European superpowers, yeah. um, you had the American you know, powerhouse, but Australians were just taking care of all those sort of countries, really. Well, I think that... What happened? What were oh, the three I'll, things that Largely... I think that one major thing was having the 56 Olympics. Yep. Having the Games here in 1956. I mean, as far as me personally was concerned, at the time of the 56 Olympics, I was just started running. Yes. I mean, in those days, you didn't run as a junior. I first decided I could run when I was in year 11 or something like that. So yep. I went out and ran the school sports and won the 880 and the mile. Yep. And I'd never run before. So, and then the Olympics came along and I was incredibly inspired by that. And so yes. what happened with Australian distance running in those days, pre-56, Landy for a start had gone out there and sh almost on his own as far as Australians were concerned. Um, he'd gone out and run incredible times and almost broken the world record, was just beaten to the sub-four-minute mile, but didn't, did it fairly soon afterwards. But Landy was an inspiration, but I think that the couple of things in those very early days were John Landy, Yes. It was an incredible inspiration to yep. people. And yep. if I can say this, if and when I write a book, um, I'm, one of the things, one of the title options might be, who do you think you are, John Landy? <laughs> because what used to, these days, you go out for a run in the street. Now people, everyone's doing it. Yes. But if, if we were game enough to go out for a run in the street as a young bloke in the late 50s, early 60s, it was quite rare. Yeah. And some of the people would say to you, you know, nicely, but they'd say, who do you think you are, John Landy? You know? <laughs> okay. So that's one of my book title wow. options. Yep. Who do you think you are, John Landy, you know? Because that, that was sort of pre the big jogging wave came through, oh, I guess, yeah, in the sure. 70s. And there that, was still it? nothing like that around. The only people who ran were people in competitive situations and clubs. There were no fun runs. Well, the word jogging probably wasn't even made up then, was it? Did yeah. people even talk about jogging back yeah. in those I don't days? talk about jogging much now. <laughs> well, I do, but that's all I can <laughs> do these days. Yeah. No, no, I don't like, people say they go for a jog, I say they go for a run. Yes. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so I think Landy, 56 Olympics, and then and then just realising we all, the New Zealanders did the same, we did, and so did, and not just in Victoria. Victoria, prior to... Our group coming through, New South Wales dominated distance running here with guys like Elby Thomas and Dave Power yep. and Alan Lawrence and those guys who were 56. Victoria came through, but largely it, it happened because we realised that it wasn't a solo thing. You could get out there and you, if you ran with other people, it made it much more enjoyable. Um, and then we discovered, so there's more than three, but you know, yeah. we discovered stuff like running in the forest and running in yeah. undulating, running in nice surroundings that had been done way back way back in the early days in the 20s by people like Pavo Nermi and Emil Zadipek yep. and they used to do 
running forests and bush tracks and stuff like that. But largely then it really got into people running more on the track and then we got back to running in those range of environments yeah. and doing more miles, you know. So really it's just a matter of, yeah, a range of things came together and then a little bit of success. I mean, when we I went to 62 Commonwealth Games, four or five out of our running squad at Caulfield Racecourse made that Commonwealth Games team. Yeah. And I won a gold medal in the steeplechase. Clarkie came back and won a silver medal in the three mile. A mate of ours who ran with us, we didn't run with Glenn Huntley, ran with Isle Scotch. Rod Benella won a bronze medal in the marathon. Yep. Um, and we had five or six yeah. just from our little group that made that Commonwealth Games team. And then later on, 1964, myself, Tony and Ron all made the 64 Olympic team. Yeah. I, I'd had quite a disastrous games because I had a bit of an Achilles problem, but... Um, so that didn't go well for me. In fact, the guy who got the bronze, me- the silver medal in Tokyo was the one that I beat in Perth yes, to, win the okay. gold, to win the gold medal. But Ron, yeah, so it, it all sort of, you know, a, a range of things happened. Yep. But we, we um, while we had goals in those days, we didn't have, well, we had realistic goals. The last thing I ever thought when I went to 56 games as a, as a young 18-year-old, or as an 18-year-old, yep. was that I would ever be making an Olympic team eight years later and competing in the same team as some of the people I saw in 56. Yeah. So I didn't have that sort of goal then, but fairly early in the piece, I thought, this running's for me. Yep. Um, and I was lucky enough to strike a bunch of people that were keen to do the same sort of thing. Yeah, so I guess, like, looking at it, you basically had Landy in the Olympics, which sort of gave you, you know, a real taste of success and, and what, you know... Yeah, what On the local what, scene. On the local right. scene yep. at a high level... You were really, you know, I guess, you know, pioneers in the in the running industry, still yeah. in creating the training and the methods. And yeah, like you said, you had Arthur Lydia next door in New Zealand. Um, so you know, really, um, you have some key things. I want to actually talk about your race at the Commonwealth Games. Yeah, yeah. Um, leading up to that, and then I guess on the start line, what was your you know, preparation like? And were you thinking I can win this race from the get go, or what was your mindset for that? Yeah, it is. 50-something years ago. <laughs> 53 years ago. Yeah. Look, um, there's a few things that went in my favour over there. The, the, my main opposition turned out to be this guy, Morris Herriot, who was an English um, steeplechaser who later went on to win the silver in Tokyo in 64. And he was more a specialist steeplechaser. I came from a... I came from more a distance running background. And this the, the reason that I took up steeplechase wasn't because I... One reason was that I, very early in the piece, I was smart enough to work out this Ron Clark's going to be able to run a bit. Yeah. And so if I can find something to dodge him, I might pick up a <laughs> bit, few, you know, I yes. could beat him up to a mile, but after that. So one, and then I found I was, my technique was quite good. I could hurdle and, yes. you know, I was pretty flexible, yep. stuff like that. Yep. Um, in fact, running cross country, I was, I could handle Clarkie on cross country if there were fences and... <laughs> Yeah. Creeks to jump, yeah. stuff like that. You yeah. got out there, you just had to run a flat, fast course. I was in trouble. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I did that, and then I, but I, so I discovered the steeplechase, um, and had reasonably quick times. So I was probably the second quickest. I think Harriet was quicker than me. Yep. Um, and at that stage, even though if they wanted to be there, could have, there were no Kenyans, you know. Mm. So they discovered that they could run distance a little bit after that. Yes. But. Um, was that their fault for not being there? But, um, yeah, and then look when we got on the starting line. One, the, I mean, it didn't hit me at the time, but it was the day was 103 degrees in the old scale. 
So yep. it was a bloody hot day. Didn't suit yeah. the Poms. Yep. It suited me a bit better. Yes. Um, and, yeah, so I made sure I got up there. I, one of my policies in steeplechase, and I, I, we might have talked about this before we started recording, is I always, my belief is to use your strengths Yes. Um, and not spend too much time trying to improve your, develop your weaknesses. I wouldn't want to, I mean, while I was very quick, I had a good turn of speed and that, and that was the sort of thing that went in my benefit. And I was also, had my technique was quite good. And so I, I was probably better up to about 3,000, 5,000 metres after that. I still did lots of running, but I wasn't, my, my um, yeah, longer distance running wasn't up to the same standards. Ron Clark and Tony Cook, those guys, and they went better there, but they didn't have the same turn of speed. So, and in a steeplechase, one of my strengths was my technique and whatever, and I know that what, you get into trouble in a steeplechase if you get stuck behind other people who balk and do... <coughs> pardon me. So I, I'd... It'd be a tactical thing, but I'd, I didn't mind leading a steep. Yep. I wouldn't... I've got a bit of a tech uh, and reputation among some of those other guys as a sitter. Yep. But and but that was because I knew my strength was strong finish. At the end, yep. But in steeplechase, I knew, even though they might have had a bit in that regard, I still reckon I was better off to be in front where I could get a good sight at the obstacles. I mean, it is a tough event. Others might argue with this, but I think it's the toughest event on the athletic program. <laughs> yeah. Um, yep. So over 3,000 metres, you're doing 35 obstacles, yeah, 28 hurdles and, got a case to and make. seven water jumps. Um, yeah, and I, we had a good race. Um, early, another Australian, Ian Blackwood, led a little bit early, and, um, and Ron, Ron Blackney. But then I went to the front maybe about a lap and a half to go or a couple of laps to go and um, managed to hold them off. Yeah, and won the race, uh, and in very very strong heat. Just by the by, um, that Olympics they, they were held. Commonwealth Games were held in Perth, Western Australia, and that that track has been pulled up. It's now a housing development, and yes. the and the uh, track itself is now a, the where the track was is now a little ring road. Yeah, okay. And uh, up the top end of the of this development is a they've named all the streets in this in this um, housing development after athletics events. Yeah. And there is actually a, a street called Steeplechase Green. Uh, there you go. Which is up the top end, where the, up the end where the water jump was. And there's a developer over there built some building a display home and she's call, they're calling it the Vincent. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, because it's, it's got a little story about it. So I'm go. lucky I've got a house named after get your house Steeplechase Green in Perth. You know you made yeah. it when you got a house yeah, named yeah. after you. <laughs> And I think actually in that didn't race, remember, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, you broke the Commonwealth record, was it? Um, well, it wasn't hard to break. The Commonwealth Games record wasn't hard to break because 62 was the first time the Commonwealth Games, the steeplechase, was run. But you ran faster than anyone else had run before, obviously. In the I'm three not sure that. about that, no. But I did held the, yeah, I held the Australian record for steeplechase and, yep. and a bunch of other state records and stuff for the steeple. Now, I don't know... Not sure about that one. Oh, I'll geez, right. I might, I might <laughs> have to check my, uh, yeah, my no, uh, research right. on but that I'll one. But I'll accept it. Yeah. <laughs> we'll run with it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess... Um, but just on the steeple, um, and then... So even though I ran it, it wasn't my favourite event. Yep. I did it. It was a tactical thing because I wanted to... I enjoyed more running three mile in the old days, yards days, yep. mile or 1,500 metres and three mile. Um and I enjoyed those races, and I won Australian championships at a mile and three mile. Yeah. But not that quick. The fastest mile, oh, it was quick in those days, was 4.01 for a mile. And yep. that was when 
only five or six Australians who run quicker. But once again, I went to Steeple because I reckon that's where I had a chance. And I proved myself right by winning yeah. at Perth. And I wouldn't have won the mile in Perth if I'd run that because Peter Snell was there. And Snelly went on to win double at the Olympics, you know. So these things work in your favour. So you've got to make a calculated decision that, at some stage there about where, you, you know, where your future lies a little bit without putting all your pennies into the one yeah. basket, you know. I'd like to um, touch, you've touched a bit earlier, but on your um, training group you're training now, mm. so how many athletes do you have a part of that group? And, and well, well, look, what I'm doing now, I'm involved, still involved with my club, but I've, and I've got a number of athletes that, with another coach from our, my club, between us we coach a number of athletes, sort of more hands-on. Yep. And one of them, a girl, won the last year's Australian Marathon Championship. And, and there's a range of other kids, but we've got yeah. no real high-profile people, but we will have. Yep. But aside from that, I've got a large group. I'm at Monash University at the Clayton campus on Tuesday nights, and I've got a very large group of students and staff and a few local community, a few people from my club go down there, but mainly make it up with money, students and staff. And Tuesday night this week, which you might recall, was bloody cold and wet. Yes, we it was. We had 95 there. 95 people? Yeah. So it's big. And doing um, a big, like a distance we, session? We, and what oh, you yeah. Know? I mean, um, and one of the things I actually write, I do a little weekly newsletter, and this week's note, I mentioned that I'm really pleased to see that number turning out that sort of day because yeah. I reckon running is an all-weather sport. Yeah. So I don't want to... So what they do now, I, I try and encourage them. I've got a couple of hundred on the books. Yep. And it's it's free. I mean, they don't yep. have to pay to do it. But So what they... In the early days, they'd say, oh, TV, it's too cold or it's too wet. But now they don't. Yeah. Now, that might be the reason, but they say, oh, I left my shorts behind. Or got, <laughs> you know, I've, something's happened. I've stuck in the lab. But... I just congratulate them. Said it's great to see you turn out like that in all weather because it doesn't feel so much better when you get out there and do it. You know, yeah. so you've really got to bite the bullet in all sorts of weather conditions. But yeah, so I have a large group, and they come over there, and some of them knew they think that we're just going to go out for a run for half an hour. And I say, well, it's not much use me coming down here for spend. You know, by the time I leave home and get home, it's about two hours. That yep. I'm away from home. Not much use me. What do I don't need to be there? If I just get down there and say, right, I'll see you in an hour. I'll go for a run. Yes. So yes. I actually give them a little session. They're fartlek type sessions, which an old Swedish term that goes back as sort of speed play. Yep. Um, and because they're a range of abilities, rather than get them to say, you might, a more accomplished athletes, you might say, go out and do 10 times 400 metres or 5 times 400 metres and jog recovery of 30 seconds. Because of the huge range of abilities, it's more a time thing. So I have my little whistle and whatever else. And um, I say, right, tonight we're doing 60-second efforts. Yep. Then once we get going, like on Tuesday night, we did, they did 8 by 60-second efforts with 60-second jog recovery and then 4 by 30 seconds. And I blame a whistle. And, and so in that situation, after about two or three minutes, people are being lapped. You've got no idea who's leading and who's last, so there's no intimidation for the people yes. at the back. Yes. And the other thing is that they all finish at the same time. Yeah. Otherwise, if I should go and do 10 of this or whatever, I'd be there all night with some of them because yep. they're yep. quite slow. Yep. Um, so, yeah, that works well and does give a bit of incentive to the quicker ones to actually, you know, they can see someone ahead of them all the time. Yeah. So we do those sorts of sessions. And then on Saturday mornings, I have another group that does a hill session. I'm a firm believer in, as well as doing those long runs that over hills, I actually 
lot and believe in doing dedicated hill sessions, which is something the New Zealanders did as well. So a short hill, maybe up to about two to 300 metre long hill yep. with a reasonable incline and then a bit of a loop bring you back down the bottom. We do that Saturday mornings and um, they do a, a session. We meet at a park here called Gerald's Park. We run about two or th- a couple of K out to a, a dirt hill yep. and then they do a session on that hill. Yeah. And then run back, um, 15 minutes, you know, maybe 15 minutes warm up, about 20, 25 minutes, come back. Yep. And then we meet at the cafe and have a coffee afterwards. So it's quite social. Yeah, absolutely. But that, um, and once again, that Saturday, Saturday morning group started off a couple of years ago, maybe four or five, and now I'm getting 60, 50 to 60 there on Saturday mornings. Yeah. And what I should the... charge for them. <laughs> bucks a head you, you can make a, make a yeah. small fortune. But it does get me healthy because I ride my bike down there to meet them. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And follow them around on the bike. With your group, and I guess um, you know you've sort of been the leader of the group. What are the what would be you know two or three key things that you try to um, do with these runners to you know help uh, well, them along? Look, I try and encourage them to have some goals. Yep. Um, and realistic goals, and that doesn't matter who who they are. You know, and running goals. Yep. Um, but it might be, I mean, the girl that one girl that I help. It's not part of that group, but she's part of the one that I coach. But I mean, her goal might be ultimately to make a, com- you know, make a mm. team, a national team. Um, the others might be to imp- mainly their their goals are to try and well, let me say what I do every six weeks or so at Monash is have a two k time trial. Yep. And we use a measured course, and we time everyone. They record it, and then we do that six weeks later. And one of the little goals they have is to try and improve their PB. Yes. And that can improving PBs is a great goal because you know anyone can do it. Yep. You don't give them a time goal; you get a goal of improving their PB. And you and and the outside that, even though courses and vary, I like them to try and have that PB thing in mind about running things like 10k race or 5k or fun run, half marathon or whatever, um, and try and have a little goal of doing that. But and the other thing I I want them to do is that I say. Some of them come down there on Tuesday nights and say, geez, it's a bit tough, you know, those fartlek sessions. Well, I say, you've got to run as you feel, but also what I want to get through to you is if you're going to run that better, you're probably going to have to run a couple of other days during the week. Yes. And it's so simple to run. You know, distance runners have got it easy. If we've pole vaulters or throwers or jumpers or sprinters, we have to go to a track, you know, and you have to yep. take your spikes and or your blocks and yep. your shot puts and all that. But... I mean, you can go for a run out the back front door, can't you? And I say, anything's better than nothing. So they say, oh, I don't have much time. I say, go for 10 minutes. Yep. You know? And it all helps. And, and it's amazing to see them come in all shapes and sizes. They all improve. It's quite amazing. Yeah. And it doesn't take long. If you're starting from a, a really unfit background, yep. there's the ones you can see a dr- fairly dramatic improvement. Yeah, with Others yeah. might still look at them like weeder and say, geez, you know... <laughs> Yeah, and I say, but yeah, but you should have seen him six weeks ago. Yeah. <laughs> with um, realistic goals, what, just tell me what you mean by that with people seeing realistic goals, and what's that mean for you? Um, yeah, I th- well, oh, yeah, good one. Realistic goals would something that that is almost beyond your reach. You think, but I, I'd like to. Have, so I'd like to have a short term, a realistic short-term goal yep. and something a bit longer term that might be slightly unrealistic you know yep. um, but so you're, you're realistic the, a short-term goal might be just to improve 
at that next time trial in six weeks' time, and that's yes. fairly realistic, yep. even if you improve a second or something, yep. you know. But then an, un, an, an over 2K, but then a, a slightly longer-term goal that's still realistic might be to run the Melbourne Marathon or run a marathon. Yes. Um, and that's a, an achievable goal. And once you do one, I say that I don't mind if you walk part of the way, but if you get one under your belt, then you've got a time there and and, and then you've, that's a more realistic goal for next time. Yeah. Um, and marathons and half marathons are good because there's plenty of time, you know, you can make up. It's amazing how someone gets real fit yep. comparatively. And it might take four hours for a marathon or five hours. It's pretty easy for them to improve a fair bit. If they're running two hours like these Kenyans running 202, they're going to improve by one second or something. But... People are running slow, running slower times can never go get out there and do it. They still need to prepare for a marathon, but not worry too much about you know. Just the main thing is to get there. <clears throat> but I, I don't encourage someone to just say, oh, "Come along tonight and say I'm going to run the Melbourne Marathon." I've never run before. I'd say, "Well, look, I'd rather you go to 12 months, so give it a reasonable go, because you could do this one and take four or five hours and just be totally wrecked and." not be motivated to try it again yes the fitter you are the more chance you've got to be able to handle them you know have you run a marathon yourself oh yeah yeah yep. went quite a few yep. oh about 12 but i i ran one very well comparatively no i didn't run anything when i was guys like ron clark and tony cook they both ran in the olympic marathon 64 i got yep. close to running that to tell you the truth in those days um and it happened right through not right through up till about 1972 mainly, I reckon. Um, if you were picked in the team, and I was picked in the team in the steeplechase, and there was a vacancy in another event, to some extent you could apply to fill that spot, so yeah. long as you weren't a real dog at the event. Yeah. Um, and that, look, i tell you a, a, one remarkable thing as far as that's concerned. I should know the year, but a, a, fa a great Australian walker named Ross Haywood. Yes. Ross went to the Olympics for the 20k walk but there was a spot in the marathon so he applied for that and he got in the marathon yeah. he d I don't think he finished the marathon but he actually Ross did the walk and the marathon in the same Olympics wow. in 64 there was only one Australian pick from, for the marathon it was a guy from Sydney called Bob Vag, who was a good friend of mine um, but also in the team myself, Ron Clark Tony Cook and LB Thomas yep. and we were all distance runners um, so we applied for the two vacant spots. And in their wisdom, the selectors gave them to Ron Clark and Tony Cook. Yes. But I've still got a letter there that tells me, you know, <laughs> right back and said, thanks for your application, but we've preferred Ron Clark and Tony Cook for the marathon. So I got that close to running the Olympic yeah. marathon. Yeah. But I was much happier sitting in the stand watching the finish of that because um, <coughs> in 64, the winner in the marathon was an Ethiopian called Abibi Bakula, who I'd, it was great to see that. Superstar. To see him in action, yeah. So he won in Rome in 1960 and then he won again in 64. Clarky, Cookie and Bob Vag all finished, So we're, yep. and Ron was eighth. Yeah. And we had a great games. Yeah. Yeah. That's unbelievable. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, so I ran a marathon, but not that seriously. So I guess we're back, back with your um, runners. So you, you work on the obviously the goal setting and really improving them. Yeah. Um, where, where do you, I guess, where do you see going forward with these guys? You look, you're looking to just continue to build the size of the group, or are you more looking for the higher? Well, look, no, no. At this step, well, it's not because of my age, but you know, I'm, I'm not a youth anymore. But the main thing I want to do is get people involved and see them achieve some PBs and 
and hopefully get, you know, I'm not in there to try and make it, get athletes, make the Olympics and whatever else, but I'm keen to see them achieve their best potential. Yep. Um, and that's really satisfying to see that. Occasionally, if we see, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> if we see a few break through and get to the highest level, that's great, you know. And right at this stage, there's a few young kids in our squads down at the club that are very good. Over the past few years, you know, past say five, ten years, what runners have you enjoyed on the scene, watching and uh, following, you know, at the world class level, international superstars of the sport? Oh, in more recent times, I certainly had my heroes back in the early days, and that was Landy and Elliot, and yep. um, a whole bunch of Australians who I knew was lucky to know quite well. Merv yes. Lincoln and um, yes. Dave Parry, Albie Thomas, and Albie passed away just not so long ago, which was really sad to see. But in more recent times, I suppose, um, you know, maybe the Africans, there's been some great African runners. Yeah. Um, and I, Haley Gabriel Selassie was incredible. Paul Turgat. Um, and then amongst the Australians, you know, I think we've had some really great runners in the Australians. Craig Mottram yep. was fantastic. Uh, these days, we're not, we've got a, a number, you know, just recently a couple of Australians ran really quick 10Ks in the US. And so with the World Championships coming up, I hope we'll acquit ourselves there. Um, my event, the Steeplechases, is still a bit of a Cinderella event. We've only yep. got... Um, my PB, I could have won this year's national steeple title. My PB oh, going back to 1963. Wow. Yes, yeah. So, but that's because there's just not the depth there. We've got one or two guys. We've got one guy, James Nippers, who's quite good. Yes. And he's showing great potential. And he won a big race in the States on the weekend. And he's running, you know, he's quick. And so there's a bit of a chance there. But uh, And I, I've actually, since I stopped competing, I've been away to a few World Cross Country Championships as yeah. team manager. And I've seen a few there, like Gaston Rolands and, um, oh, you know, and a whole bunch of distance runners. Yep. And on and, and the women's side, you know, I mean, I, there's an a Irish girl living here who was one of my great heroes, and that was Sonia O'Sullivan. Sonia was great. Melbourne and Sydney 2000, great race, and won a double at World Cross Country. But there's been a huge number of Australian distance runners who have done well yep. over time. Um, Benita Willis and, um, oh, you know, and a whole bunch of others. Yeah. So. I must say, Paul Turgat was probably my favourite growing up. Paul Turgat was yeah. um, the man for me. I thought he... Uh, well, he had an incredible race with Gabriel Selassie in Sydney 2000. Probably the greatest 10K. One of the greatest, yeah. So if any of our listeners... Yeah. Try and get a hold of the Sydney 2010K. It is a ripper. Yeah, and have a look at Gabriel Selassie and um, I, I must Gabriel admit, just held him off right on the line. You know, it's an incredible last lap. And the women's 5K is the same with Sonia O'Sullivan. Yeah, yeah, and um, um, Gabriel Zabo. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So no, incredible stuff. Yeah, that is the one. What if you had to? Um, if you were trying to recreate, I guess. In today's that you know today with what you guys had 50 years ago with how good you guys were what would what are the sort of things you would try and implement in today's distance runners well, i think that what's happened a little bit now uh, more is that there's now we're broken i still see a large number of people getting up in the dandenongs and running together and i think that's important so i think it, that to some extent groups seem to stay in their own little groups we even though we had our running group, we'd get up the Dandenongs and we had people from a range of clubs running with us. Yes. So I think that group thing is very important. Yeah. Um, and the, the harder part now is there's a bit of money in the sport for those at the top level, but there's not many Australians can achieve that. Yeah. And what we're seeing is that 
to get that competition, they need to travel overseas. I'd like to see what happened here. I'd like to see more interchange with New Zealand. Yep. And I think that if we reverted back to that a little bit more, yeah. it would make a bit of difference. Yep. Um, but, and even in my day, we had interstate matches between Australia, Victoria and New South Wales matches, those sorts of things. So that we don't see much. The only time now that it... Well, there's a lot more big major meets, so I suppose they get to catch each other then. But we used to get more opportunity to race against the people from the other states. The thing against... One of the problems we've got here compared to Europe is that we're such a big country. Yeah. Um, and if you want to be a distance runner in Western Australia, it's pretty hard mm. because it's just so far away. I mean, to come from Western Australia over to... Or Perth to Melbourne to race is just like I don't know. You could travel right across the full length of Europe and race in every country on the yeah yeah. Just so we've got Challenge. we've still got those disadvantages. But look, we didn't travel much in those early days. Ron Clark got to travel a fair bit when he made it to the top, you know. Yep. But the sort of travel we did was fairly rare. But we did it our, at, on our own level. Yeah. And it was we just built self confidence in our own ability and by seeing stuff happen. Um, that, but yeah, so that's yeah. Mm. Well, I guess we're sort of coming, sort of starting to wrap this one up, uh, Trev. Got a couple of final questions that I like to ask. Um, I guess if you had to um, tell people to read three books, thing. If you had to tell people to read three books to really uh, maximise their abilities, not only just in sport, but in maybe business mm. and life in general, what would the three books that you would uh, recommend oh, you people... should have given me some... <laughs> should have given me some um, time, shouldn't I? Oh, look, I think that... I mean, the, the Ron Clark wrote a great book um, and uh, that's um, that's something that... And now my mind's gone blank. It's The Unforgiving Minute? The Unforgiving yeah, Minute, it's yeah. Yeah, it's a ripper. Uh, Ron's... And that's a great... That was written in 1965, so it's before his career finished. Um, but uh, that's good. Herb Elliott's book's fine. There's a whole bunch of stuff around. I'll tell you what... One of the, I meant to mention earlier, when I started running, there was nothing around as yeah. far as that was concerned. But one thing that was there was there was a coach here in Australia called Franz Stamfel who yes. coached Roger Bannister the first four-minute mile. And and his his training was quite, as things developed with us, we went right away from the Bannister type, for yep. me, uh, Stamfel type training. It was largely track training and doing repetition yep. training. But I must say that very early in my first few years there, that's all I had. Yeah. And I've still got that book called Stanfall on Running and that he had schedules in the back and it was all typed up and it said, you yeah. know, do 10 by four, 40 yards in 64 seconds or something. And I've got my copy of the book and I've written in pencil there what my times were. Yeah. And that was my book that I used to follow in the early stages. So, yes. I mean, there's a range of books around. I love reading books to do, you know. Yep. Um, so, yeah, there's a range of stuff around about books about who to read. But I like Clarkie's book, The Unforgiving Minute. Yep. And Herb Elliott's Golden Mile. But um, and, and there's a number of others around as well. Yeah. Know, people have done their books. But not necessarily biographies. There's, there's a range of books on training and so on, you know. Yeah. So if anyone wants a book to read about running, they should just give me a yell. <laughs> I've got a library full of running books. Yeah, yeah. I'm a bit of an avid reader on the running books. Um Final question though, uh, Trev, final one. If you had to give three pieces of advice to people um, yeah. to take with them, and you know, you're only allowed to give three, yeah. 
what three bits would you say to people aspiring in whether yeah, again be in sport or business? I might come business? up with three, and then I think of three more. Okay. <laughs> we'll see yeah. how we go. Oh well, I think that I think you need to maintain focus. Yep. So, um, and I think that's important. I, I always like to sort of have a good focus as far as my running was concerned. Yes. Um, and it's almost look at the same time as I was running seriously, I was had a family. I was married early. I had one of our kids came very early, but I still had that real focus. Not at the expense of you. I know I had to work. Yep. But I had a real strong focus on running. Unfortunately, I got good support for that at home, um, and that meant, like I talked about before, hail rain or shine, you're out there mm, doing it. Yep. Um, and being in that situation made it easier as a distance runner. So I, I really need to focus in on what I really wanted to do. Um, and it wasn't, as, as things developed a little bit more, I was a bit more serious about it. I wasn't in it to make money. There was no money there, but I really thought I could make something of this. I could do well. So I tried to maintain the focus I had. The, the next thing I, I looked at, and I mentioned maybe a bit earlier, is this thing about strengths and weaknesses. Yes. None of us, well, not many of us, are, are perfect in all areas. You know, we've all got our strengths and weaknesses in a range of things in life, not just in running ability. And I... I um, so my strengths, I focused on my strengths a bit and yeah. I didn't focus as much as other people might have thought I should have on my weaknesses, but I didn't want to, I knew my strength in, in racing was a bit of speed, um, yep. a little bit of nous about how to handle people, my knowledge of other people. So I, did, I didn't want to, but I lacked a little bit in endurance, probably not that much. But I, I wanted to make sure I focused and used, used those strengths to the best of my ability. Yeah. And that's why, to some extent, in my running, I might have been looked upon as a sitter because I was in there to win the race. Yeah. Not many of us in our day, we didn't focus too much on breaking records and that sort of stuff. We wanted to win the race. Um, and so the ones that are remembered, like Ron Clark won the broke 18 world records. Um, and is not remembered as well as he should be because he didn't win an Olympic gold medal. You know, I mean, that's sad, but um, but anyhow, he's the same. We wanted to win the races, and if those records came at the same time, you know, that was fine. So yep. we just focused on those strengths. And and, uh, and the other thing, I suppose, is, yeah, the thing that I, as I might advance in age a little bit, I think that it's very important to keep your mind and body active all the time. Yep. Um, and so I try and have as many involvements as I can, not just on the running side. At this stage, I've, even though I'm retired from work, I'm a volunteer or guide at the National Sports Museum at the MCG. Yes. I ride my bike, so you've got to be alert, keep <laughs> your mind active for that. Yep. yep. When I'm riding my bike, I'm really cheesed off about walkers and runners, yep. you know, yep. because they don't pay attention to us bike riders. But then when I'm out riding out running I get really cheesed off at the, the bike, bike riders <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> and uh, then when I'm driving my car when I'm riding my bike although I keep off roads I'm really not happy about the way some motorists treat us but then when I'm driving I'm not happy about the way some yeah. of the bike riders so it's a matter of what hat you're wearing you know but, exactly um, right yeah so that's the and I, something I was just going to talk about briefly is injuries yeah um I one the thing that prior to 1964 Olympics I very close to the time I started to get this problem with my right Achilles tendon. Yes. And um, and so I went to Tokyo and I always had bursitis in the heel, so I was in trouble and I couldn't really 
produce my best. So, But anyhow, subsequently, just in 1966, just before the Commonwealth Games, when I was running Will Real, I snapped the Achilles tendon. So that, that was an incredible disappointment because I missed that team and I spent a year out of athletics and I couldn't do a steeple again. But one of the sort of things that I always think about injuries, and I try and tell people now, is that try and think positive and look the future for it. You know, I was fortunate that time that I, I suppose I'd done a bit, even though I was only 25, 26 when that happened. Yep. 20, anyhow, when that happened, I still had a future ahead of me, but I, it was sort of the finish of my really international career, but I still managed to come out and run very well at the national level. Yes. So I sort of tried to stay positive, but the injury thing... If injuries can injuries can get really get you down, you know, and, and I was lucky. I came from an era where you didn't, where you had a sore leg, you didn't have a stress fracture because they couldn't yeah, diagnose that yeah, sort of thing. Yeah. I tell you what, I tell people now, it's a hell of a lot easier to recover from a sore leg than it is from a stress fracture. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, the injury thing is quite a problem, and in a range of sports, but somewhere or other, you've got to see a light at the end of the tunnel because if and when you well when you eventually get over that injury, you'll. You, there's no reason why you can't be back as good and, and better than ever, and you're not. And rather than be too anxious to get, about getting back, you need to give it a little bit of time, and try and make sure it's right. So, so it. if you do have a real long-term injury, what sort of things would you suggest to people to maintain their, well, well, you know, maintain their, I'll, their positive fortunately outlook? Fortunately, I was naturally sensible in that regard, or, and, and I'm a small person. <coughs> but the temptations there when you're not exercising to do the thought sort of put on too much weight and um, and lose fitness and you know but I think that the main thing is just to I led a reasonably healthy lifestyle I ate sensibly yep and that just continued mm. I don't hop on the scales every day but I mean I still weigh now what I did when I was running slightly different shape but you know I still <laughs> run what way roughly now because I lead a fairly healthy sort of lifestyle I eat sensible stuff yes um, I haven't got a huge appetite don't drink a hell of a lot of grog, never smoked, you yep. know. Yep. Um, so, and I come from an era when, from a smoking era, um, and it was very easy, you know, it might have been very easy to get into that sort of situation. And, But, yeah, I think that if you're going through that injury thing, I think you've just got to try and maintain a bit of self-restraint um, and mm. try and um, still maintain that healthy lifestyle. A little bit of cross-trainings, fine. Yep. Um, and that... You know, riding, riding a bike and swimming and doing that sort of stuff. Mm. But then the main thing with injury is to see a light at the end of the tunnel. And we're so much luckier now that they can do surgical procedures and stuff that can happen, that can repair a lot of things that mightn't have been, able to re- been repaired later. Yeah. I saw some 99-year-old guy had some heart surgery just recently. Oh, so that's there right. You go. There you go. So for me. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And he's going well. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I like the yeah, thank you, um, Trevor. I guess we'll wrap it up on there. We're sort of running on time. Yep. Um, yeah, I really like to thank you for coming on and having a chat with us. No um, yeah. And really, yeah, really showing some insight into the you know, golden age, I golden guess, age, of yeah. athletics. Yeah. Um, and I like, yeah, I really like to acknowledge you for all the work you're doing with all the runners up and coming yeah. and everything else you do in volunteer basis. You're really contributing, and I really hope you can continue oh, that. I, and I do it because I enjoy it. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Well, thank you very much, and um, we'll have to uh, catch up again soon. Okay, thanks a lot.